Inspire with the CEDP Mission Team. Connecting with teachers to transform students' experience of religious education. Welcome to Inspire. My name is Scott Carroll. I'm a teaching educator with the Mission Team for Catholic Education in the Diocese of Parramatta. In recent episodes, we've had Professor Anthony Marr breaking open elements of the draft new curriculum. We began with the formation dispositions, and now we move on to the rationale. And now, here's Anthony. So having, having briefly introduced the dispositions, I would now like to take you through the extended rationale. And I'll pause as I go through just to, just to try and reflect or break open some, some of the, the terms or, or the theology. There's extensive footnotes with the rationale, which, which you'll see in the, in the curriculum, and I, I won't speak to those today, but perhaps in the future or, or when we meet and, and we discuss this face-to-face. So the rationale has a, a coat hanger, if you like, and, and which the curriculum is, is hung on, uh, and it's this. Education within the Diocese of Parramatta is a ministry of the Catholic Church, walking with humility in the way of Jesus, serving all of God's people. So when you go to the 51 learning cycles, you can ask yourself, is that coat hanger, as I'm calling it, reflected in those 51 learning cycles? Now just a word about some of the content. Education within the Diocese of Parramatta is a ministry of the Catholic Church. Ministry is quite a a difficult concept for us as Catholics because we we have a a hierarchical church and the term minister or ministerium from from the Latin into Middle English means uh, to minister or to serve. Round about the 17th century, it became almost uh, exclusively associated to clergy uh, and to priests and to hierarchy. And we've been in that space probably then for 350 years. But then 62 to 65, Vatican II, as you know, explored again that concept of ministry, to serve, to serve others. And we started to expand our understanding of ministry, not uncontroversially, by the way, because there were those who wanted to say, ministry is the exclusive domain of clergy. And there were others who wanted to argue, particularly with reference to Vatican II, that ministry is a work of all of the baptized. To minister and to care and to serve for others is a work of the baptized. So we say with some assurance that teaching in our schools is a ministry. Education in our schools is a ministry. In the rationale, but even more in in the uh, learning cycles, we distinguish between a sacrament and sacramentality. Now, ministry has a sacramental dimension to it. Sacramental or the sacramentals point to Christ or incarnate Christ in real life. And so you can see how we would then, from those few things I've said, start to construct 
a contemporary theology of ministry around education, uh, around teaching, around care for the sick or the dying or people in hospital or in prison or on Manus Island. So we have a ministry, Bible-inspired, Christ-inspired to serve those in, in our care or in need with our proviso always in the back of our minds, particularly the marginalized or the most vulnerable. So teaching Catholic education is a ministry of the church. When I first explained this term to a group of about 50 or 60 teachers, I was deeply moved because one of the teachers started to cry and she was a lady who was just about to retire. And she said, all my life, I've understood my work as a ministry with all the theological and the sacramental underpinnings that I've just explained. And she said, but this is the first time anybody has affirmed me in my ministry. And she found it deeply moving. Now that is a spiritual or a theological movement of the heart through the dispositions. It will challenge teachers, most definitely. Some will say, yes, I know that already. You're just telling me something I already know. Others will say, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up to be a, a teacher of a particular discipline. So we have a conversation and a, and a discussion. From those conversations and discussions move us off into really rich theological areas. The first one, for example, would be vocation. What is a vocation? Again, vocation, traditionally, at least, let's say, for the last 300 years, has had a particular clerical mould. As we move into the third millennium, understandings of vocation and ministry and sacramentality are evolving. Our teachings in the church evolve. As Newman said, doctrine develops. So, education within the Diocese of Parramatta is a ministry of the Catholic Church into which the baptized are invited to participate. Walking with humility, I've already spoken about in the dispositions, in the way of Jesus. Now again, that's a spiritual and theological concept. Jesus didn't come as a mighty warrior or even as a king. He came as a humble servant, a humble carpenter from Nazareth. So that requires a lot of thought on the part of us Christians who, put, who turn this person into a king who was actually born in a stable to a poor family. So with humility in the way of Jesus is a deeply theological concept underpinning our rationale, our dispositions, our learning cycles and our ministry of Catholic education. Serving all of God's people. Now this is a particular challenge because if we're being attentive, if we're being reasonable, if we're being responsible um, to our context, then we realize, and I can look out now into, into the playground where these young people are playing, there's a huge variety of ethnicities and probably faith traditions right in front of my very eyes here, having fun out in the playground at St. Luke's. So if we're being attentive with this curriculum, we're going to actually understand or seek to understand better the, where these children come from, 
What's their worldview? What's their perspective? What's the hopes and dreams of their parents for their young people's lives? So we're not serving a clique or a group or our people. We're serving all of God's people. Vincent, uh, uh, Bishop Vincent captures it brilliantly. He says, we are, we are Catholics offering an education for all people. We're not Catholics offering an education for Catholics. That's not our reality. If we're saying that, we're not being attentive to our context. We're not being reasonable. We're certainly not being loving. So we are Catholics offering an excellent, rounded, holistic education for all of God's people. So the people in Marsden Park are God's people for which we offer a Catholic education. Education within the Diocese of Parramatta is a ministry of the Catholic Church, walking with humility in the way of Jesus, serving all of God's people. The purpose of the curriculum is to empower each student to discover a meaningful and flourishing life. The curriculum is a positive outlook on life. The learning cycles are positive. They're light. They bring in the Word of God to inspire and, and be inclusive. Flourishing is a central theme throughout the whole curriculum, all of the learning cycles. The purpose of every learning cycle, all 51 of them, is to allow our kids to flourish, to open them up to worldviews where they're respected, loved, but also to try and teach them or, or to allow them to uh, discern that the world isn't just about them. Uh, it is actually ab about them caring and being responsible and proactive for others, starting with the person sitting next to them in the classroom and when they go home with their brothers and sisters and, the, and their parents and the people who care for them. So a flourishing life is a central theme in, in Catholic theology. It is, I think, fair to say it's one that we've neglected. It, it started again with Aristotle. It's, it's present in, in one of our great teachers of the church, Thomas Aquinas, and again in the contemporary philosophy of, of Bernard Lonergan. A definition of, of flourishing is rather interesting when you look at Aristotle, Aquinas and Lonergan, because through the three of them we can say, flourishing is to be who you are, to become who you are. In theological terms, we use uh, imagio Dei, to become in, in the image and likeness of God. But we're called in our ministry of education to teach young people to become who God intended them to be. Not to become me or their teacher or their parents, but to become who they are. In becoming who they are, they flourish. Um, with their own identity, their own personality, their own sexuality, their own understanding of their worldview. That is to flourish. The purpose of this curriculum is to inspire our people, to empower our young people to flourish. I'd also add as an, as an aside, this curriculum is also about our teachers. And we want to inspire and create a dynamic where our teachers can flourish. They can flourish in their teaching 
of this curriculum. So our curriculum's purpose is to empower our young people and our teachers to flourish. In attempting that magnificent um, objective, if you like, we want to respond to the signs of the times. As I've said, walking with humility in the way of Jesus. The curriculum continues the universal mission of the Catholic Church. Least we think we are just the church in Marsden Park or in Par Parramatta or in Sydney or in Australia or in uh, uh, Oceania. We're not. We're a universal church, a global universal community following the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so we live in that tension between the local, the national and the universal. And we have to create uh, ways where we bring into dialogue those, those different um, uh, constituencies, if you like, of what it is to be a member of the Universal Catholic Church. Inspired by the living gospel, ensuring, ensuring students encounter divine revelation as ever ancient and ever new, as St. Augustine would say, ever ancient, ever new. The curriculum promotes the values of the gospel to develop an informed conscience, not a conscience, an informed conscience. Read up on the difference between conscience and informed conscience. It's quite an important uh, difference. An informed conscience dialogues with those partners I just said, the global universal church and the church around us and our context. So an informed conscience is, is quite uh, distinctive and again it's in the learning cycles. Disturbed by the inclusive mission of Jesus. Now we pondered long and hard about that word disturbed because it doesn't read right or doesn't seem to fit. What do you mean disturbed? Um, isn't, isn't the way, the truth and the life? What's disturbing? Well actually if you read the Gospels they are incredibly disturbing because they call out to us to respond, to be attentive, to be intelligent, to be reasonable, to be responsive, to be loving. And at times we are not. And that's disturbing. I always used to find one of the most disturbing gospel texts was, was Jesus speaking to the rich young man. The rich young man comes along to Jesus, pretty self-assured of himself, keeps all the commandments, does all the right things. And then Jesus had that little twist in the, in the tail, if you like. He said, now give everything you've got, sell it and give it to the poor and follow me. And the rich young man said, hey, st steady on. <laughs> Don't throw that one at me. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. So he was disturbed by the teachings of Jesus, as we are, should be disturbed by the teachings of Jesus. That's not to give us guilt, this old Catholic thing about guilt. It's to try and make us be responsible, to be attentive, to be intelligent, to carry some of the weight of reality around us. Um, like I said uh, in, in the dispositions, our own personal formation is not a done deal. We are ever being formed. So when I, I, I took my concerns of the rich young man to a, to a colleague, a Jesuit colleague, uh, a spiritual director, I said, look, this is really disturbing me. I'm just like the rich young man. I try and live a good life, but hey, steady on. I, I like the, uh, the trappings of modern contemporary life. Uh, is this a problem? And he said, it is if you take it literally, give everything you've got. He said, you're not going to be formed overnight. 
he said it's a process. So allow yourself the space to be in the process, to be moving towards the ideal, and not to be uh, uh, dispirited by the fact that you're not there yet. So as a Christian, I understand myself to be on a journey. From Vatican II, the church actually, actually defines us as a pilgrim people on a journey. So I am the rich young man, if you like, who won't give away my riches, but I try each day to be just that bit better by being attentive to those around me. And I take some solace, not too much, some solace in the fact that I'm trying to be better. I'm always, I always laugh at Gandhi's quote, Christianity is a wonderful religion. It's a shame there's only ever been one Christian. There's some truth in that. We are trying to be Christian. We are trying to do the best we can. And of course that requires a bit of humility again, just to step back and say, I'm not there yet, but I'm trying to be. And that way when people point at me and say, hypocrite, I can say, well, yeah, I am a bit, but I'm trying not to be. I'm trying to move forward. And that's what we're trying to teach in this curriculum. It's, we're not done deals as human beings. So, all aspects of the curriculum, rationale, methodology, theology, content, resources, professional development, teaching and learning are a way of being, as I've explained in the dispositions. And they're based on those four transcendental precepts, as, precepts, as I've said. Be attentive, be intelligent, be reasonable and be responsible. That's a way of being a Christian in, a, in our contemporary world. Drawing upon the living intellectual tradition. In the rationale you'll notice if you've got it in front of you, I use the word living twice. The living gospel and the living tradition. Because these documents, these precepts, these dispositions are incarnate in a human being. So they're alive. The gospel lives in you. It breathes, it talks, it walks, it moves. These things are alive and living. And that's what we've got to inspire the children with. The living gospel. Because they are the living gospel. So we draw upon this living intellectual tradition. Our intellectual tradition is 2,000 years in the making. And it is really something quite specific and special. Sometimes I call it the great unknown treasure of Catholicism, because so few people actually know about it. So we mine that rich tradition. The, the, perhaps one of the most profound examples is Laudato Si, that came out three, three years ago, Pope Francis's Care of the Common Home, which our kids are quoting back to us, which, which, which is wonderful. That's our living tradition. So when we think of tradition, yes, we can quote Augustine, as I just did, ever ancient, ever new, but tradition is happening today, and it happened yesterday, and it's part of who we are. And we should be proud of that tradition and engage in it. But open it up to the light of reason and intelligence. Don't turn it into a fossil. More than anything else, don't turn it into a, um, an archetype. Our tradition isn't an archetype. It's something that lives and moves and develops and evolves and changes. Again, that's a disposition. Um, it can be encapsulated in John Paul II's uh, profound 
uh, encyclical Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason. And, and that is who we try to be to the world. People of faith, but people of reason. JP2 has a lovely phrase in that opening uh, um, encyclical. It says, uh, faith and reason are the two wings on which the human spirit soars to truth. Faith and reason are the two wings on which the human spirit soars to truth, transcends self and moves towards the truth. So if we unpack that for a second and we, and we just take the one, say reason, the one wing, reason or rationale or science as it's called today. If we take science as the one wing to truth and you try and fly on one wing, well, you know what happens. You might get off the ground, but eventually you'll spiral and go back down to earth with a bang. And in philosophical terms, we call that rationalism. We rationalize ourselves into some sort of robot computer. And we're not computers. The other wing is faith. Our emotions, our dispositions, our heart. Put the two together and then you understand how we move and we transcend. Our two wings take us up soaring to that concept, that beautiful concept of truth uh, as we fly to truth. God being the way, the truth and the life as, as John says in his gospel. Fides et ratio, the two wings on which we soar to truth. Informed by a Trinitarian theology. Again, we're not great at, at understanding our Trinitarian theology. Please don't switch off or, or yawn. Trinitarian theology is actually essential for who we are. Let me just say one word to try and give us an, an insight into that. If we understand God as dissected into a, a father, a son and a spirit, we miss out on that what's called the economic uh, trinity, the relationship between the three persons of the trinity. Recently, a, a, a footballer sort of decided that he would go to the Old Testament and he would take out of context some regulations, some Deuteronomy. And he, he then came up with a hit list of those he thought God would have on that hit list. Um, if we have a Trinitarian theology, we would resist going to a hit list in Deuteronomy because Trinitarian theology would say we go to the Father through the Son with the Spirit. What does that mean then? So, we have the Hebrew Scriptures in front of us. We read the Gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a Gospel of love. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, we then go to the Father. And we might see this list of Deuteronomy or of Exodus or of Leviticus. But we no longer see it standing alone. We see it through a hermeneutical lens of, of a piece of scripture, but to a particular audience, a particular time, to a particular cultural context. And we read that scripture through the hermeneutical lens of Jesus Christ. And so we come up with a disposition which is to be loving. And we, and we remember those who, who are without sin cast the first stone. Uh, as Pope Francis said famously on his return from World Youth Day, 
Who am I to judge? So a Trinitarian theology allows us to step back, to go to the Father through the Son with the Holy Spirit. And our worldview would never be the same. We won't have a hit list. Um, uh, we won't say that group are in and that group are out. It's a completely different disposition inspired by the gospel. It is, I think you would agree, a metanoia, a change of heart, a different way of life. But we have to discern that we can't do it successfully without a Trinitarian theology. It doesn't have to be complicated. It can simply be a mantra, in the beginning anyway, to the Father, through the Son, with the Holy Spirit. Life wouldn't be the same again. The curriculum then we say communicates the love of God and that's what we get from a Trinitarian theology, a love of God through prayer, reason and action. And we use the ancient 5th century maxim lex orandi lex corendi which simply means our way of praying determines our theology. Now that's a disposition. Our way of praying determines our theology. How is your prayer? What does your prayer say? Does your prayer go out to the most marginalised or vulnerable? If it does, that shapes your theology. If your prayer is harsh or judgmental, then that too shapes your theology. So while it's an ancient maxim, lex orandi, lex corendi, it is actually crucially important for, how, for our view of reality because our prayer does shape our theology which shapes our worldview. So be careful how you pray and what you pray for because that then determines to a large extent how you then see the world and how you treat the people you interact with on a daily basis or those around you or those who might be different to you or those who look differently or think differently. Lex orandi, lex corendi. Opting for an inductive method of learning. What does that mean? There are two worldviews in this context. Inductive and deductive. Deductive comes up with an ideal and it tries to apply it to context, like the context of, of, of a particular school or a particular theology or a particular understanding of scripture or, or understanding of the family or of a person. So we have the ideal, the deductive ideal, and we then try and make everything else fit that ideal. That's deductive thinking or deductive logic. Inductive means we actually start with the context again, being attentive to the people on the ground. We start where people are, not where we are. Now that's probably a, a good model of pedagogy too. So we don't start where the teacher is, but we actually start where the kids are. We don't start where a, a philosopher is, but where the people are. And again, somewhere those have got to come into dialogue because we need each other um, uh, to, to, to interact. If I can use a, try and illustrate this. So Plato's famous allegory of the cave. The, 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 the person in the cave is chained to the back of the cave 
and he can see shadows moving in the sunlight and he idealizes who those shadows are and what they look like. And he deducts, uses his reason to deduct uh, uh, the person, a perfect person, an image of a perfect person. And for millennia, we have done that in our theology and our philosophy. We have deductively deduced the ideals, ideals for everything, everything in life and death, everything through uh, deductive logic. But if we break the chains of the guy in the allegory of the cave and he goes out into the sunlight, applying an inductive method or in inductive logic as it's called, he actually sees reality up front, in, in the raw, real. And that's a different approach, an inductive approach to the way we're trying to uh, roll out this curriculum, to the way the curriculum is formed. So one of the most um, amazing aspects of this curriculum being developed over the past few years is the inductive approach. So our, our colleagues went to the young people and captured their wonderings. Well, that's an inductive method. It's not saying this is what the kids are wondering, which would be inauthentic, but that's the way we have done it for millennia. We are now saying we're going to apply an inductive method or inductive logic and go to where the action is. Pope Francis describes this inductive method wonderfully when he says, stop trying to answer questions people are no longer asking. We've been doing that for too long. Let's start being inductive and answer the questions people are asking. So in the learning cycles, there are 51, as I've said, each one of them starts with an inductive question. And they're very powerful. Some of them will make you fall off your chair. You know, why, why should I believe in God? Does God exist? Um, uh, inductive wonderings that come from our young people, which are real, and we're trying to respond to those questions in real life. So that's an inductive method of learning. Cognizant of post-Vatican II theological anthropology. Sorry about that language. But again, behind it is something terribly important. A theological anthropology means how do we understand the human person? Again, you will see in the past we had a deductive theological anthropology, an ideal of what a human person is. For example, we had an ideal of what a family is. We had an ideal of what a Catholic family is. But that ideal doesn't fit reality. The, the mom, the dad, the boy, the girl is a deductive, idealized reality that is not our experience. Our experience is a wonderful array of different kinds of families. So there are, for example, there are six sociological classifications of family, trying to cover as many different variations as there are in real life. Well, it's a case of our theology and our philosophy trying to catch up with the reality. That's why in anything I ever do, the first step is always to try and be attentive to the reality. There is little point coming up with a a deductive understanding of a worldview that has no residence to real life. 
because it doesn't cut through and it's certainly not ministry and it's not even good education. So we have to be deductive in our method, understanding the human person. That's all that means. A theological anthropology means understanding the human person as imagio Dei, in the image and likeness of God. Now, an example for you. In the past, we had a, a cultural and a theological anthropology, if you like, the shape of a pyramid. And, and our culture or our society was, was strictly hierarchical in the shape of that pyramid. It was called, again in sociological terms, the feudal system. At the top of the pyramid is the king, or the pharaoh, or the pope, or the cardinal. And all the way down the different sides of the pyramid are the different layers or structures of, of hierarchy or church or society. In, in sociological language, let's put it into, into, say, feudal culture, we had the king, the lord, the baron, the landowner, uh, the merchants, and then, and then the, the workers, and then the poor, and then, if you like, even the slaves. And that was the feudal, you know that system has been around since Moses and before. For 3,000 years or, or, or longer, we've lived in that theological anthropology of having everybody in their place and in their structure. I was taught as a kid, the Victorian hymn, all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small. The second verse goes, the Lord made them high and lowly and ordered the estate, which means God made you rich intentionally, God made you poor intentionally, that's how it is. We then rather patronisingly came up with some deductive logic which says, but don't worry, when you get to heaven, everything will be all right. Well, a contemporary theological anthropology flips that over and says it's not all right. And God didn't make me rich and you poor. That's not how it works. So through that lens of a theological anthropology, we see things differently. We understand the person differently. There isn't in God's mind, we believe, this hierarchical structure. There are not better grades of Christian. There are not better grades of person. In our society, we grade people on money. So if you have lots of money, you're at the top of the pyramid. If you're not, you're at the bottom. Nietzsche described the ones at the bottom as the bungled and the botched. In the church, we describe them as the laity. In uh, Marxist analysis, we describe them as the proletariat, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Those are all pyramid, uh, hierarchical, feudal structures based on a particular anthropology. Well, Francis has come along and people before him, like Pedro Arupe, the most influential person probably of the 20th century in the church, and flipped that pyramid. So Francis, you will know, describes himself as the servant of the servants. So he puts himself at the bottom of this pyramid, if you like, and he puts the poor, the marginalized, the refugees at the top. That's a theological anthropology. We understand the created order differently. Now, as, as contemporary Catholics or Christians or Hindus or Muslims or atheists or no religion or agnostic or whatever we are, humanists, that's a really important and difficult challenge um, and should make us think about 
understanding our reality differently. That's why theological anthropology is important. We move on to say, to educate the whole person, as I've said, head, heart, hand, and I've explained what, what they are. To build intentional faith communities, that's another important term. Key terms like flourishing, humility, ministry. Building intentional faith communities is, is another very important term in our rationale and in our 51 learning cycles. An intentional faith community means, again, quite simply, we intentionally, through those dispositions, decide to build a community. It's a faith community. It can't be imposed from on high. It can't be deductive. An intentional faith community is organic. That means it's planted in the soil of this place, be it in the mountains or on the plains. If it's not in the soil, if it doesn't have roots in the soil, then it doesn't live. It doesn't grow. It doesn't bear fruit. Now there's another real challenge for us. We think we can build a church and have a, a community. Well, it doesn't work like that. We have to build the community. And that brings us to a better understanding of what we mean by church. Again, if we asked our young people what's church, they might point to a building. But that's not a church, that's a building. A church from the Greek, ecclesia, means an assembly or a group of people. So an assembly or a group of people is the church. That's a different worldview based on a theological anthropology that is inductive. So we go out to our young people and we say, you are church, you are an assembly of the people of God. To the Catholics, we believe we are based around the incarnation as described in the, in the gospel. An intentional faith community is gospel-based, gospel-inspired, grows out of the gospel, gives life to the gospel is on, founded on the words and ministry of Jesus Christ. But the intentional means we actually make or we come to a disposition to build a community. And there's a huge challenge for us there, to actually decide to build a community. In the past in Australia, that was a given because we had cultural communities which gathered around churches and in some parts of our diocese that is still the case. But when you get to second or third or fourth generation of immigrants, of which we all are, that doesn't work because those cultural or, or, or ethnic uh, ties are loosened and they start to dissolve. And by the time you're in the second or third generation, they've gone. Kids have moved out through our wonderful education they, they've gone off to universities or to colleges or professions or careers and their worldview changes beyond a particular monoculture as they become, as we are, multicultural. Now unless you have an intentional faith community, those ties of the monoculture, which we still see around Parramatta, and it's not a critique of them, it's just a sociological understanding of them, that they will evolve and even dissolve over generations. And that's been the history of Australia for 200 years, and I don't see any reason why that's going to change. Those communities will dissolve and become Australian. So it's about being inductive and building 
in this place an intentional faith community, which eventually we then grow around the Eucharist, the sacrament par excellence. So building intentional faith communities is extremely important. Why do we want to build them? Well, for the same reason we're doing this curriculum, to promote human flourishing. How can you understand if you're in an intentional faith community? Well, it's in an environment where our young people, our teachers flourish. It's not perfect. That, that would uh, dilute our, theolo our theological anthropology. We are not perfect. Our intentional faith communities are not perfect. Far from it. That would be back to idealism and, and deductive logic again. Our inductive intentional faith communities are human with all the blessings and all the difficulties and challenges that being human brings. In partnership with families, responsive to the voice, to the student's voice as subject and guided by theological expertise and witness of our teachers. Let me just try and unpack that because it's dense. In partnership with families, well as the Catechism says and the Code of Canon Law refers to over and over again and, and, and again Pope Francis teaches the first teachers of children and their faith is their parents. Um, and we, in, in education, are partners. I don't think we're equal partners. The parents are the main teachers of their children's faith. And we're there to assist, uh, to resource, uh, to accompany, to walk with. And, and so that relationship or partnership with families, parents, guardians is, is really crucial, not just to our theology, but for, for our actual understanding or being attentive to the people who we serve. It's a service ministry we're engaged in. Responsive to the students, voice the subject. Now this is a, what I would describe as a central pillar of the curriculum, the rationale, and, and the, the learning dispositions and learning cycles. What does it mean? Students' voices subject. I mentioned it again in a different context where we go out to the students and we hear their voice and we're responsive to their voice. Not as objects, but as subjects in their own education. And that also includes the voice of, of family and of, and of parents. Guided by the theological expertise and witness of our teachers. So there's two dimensions there. The theological expertise, and that's a challenge, that's a direct challenge to our teachers to actually be good at what you do. Not to be average or mediocre, but actually to be really good at what you do. To be skilled in your profession. To be proud of your profession. To be on top of your game. Have you ever been to, to a doctor or a physician or a, or a dentist or any profession where you felt this person isn't up with the latest in, in their field. They're not on top of the latest literature, the, the, the contemporary learning, the approach, the resources. It's really frustrating and it's not good enough. You would not go to a doctor who you thought was behind their game. I had an example a couple of years ago. My wife's an asthmatic, a serious asthmatic. And we went to the doctor, we were in a particular place for, for a prescription. And the doctor was prescribing a, a form of medication that was old. And I got really frustrated with him and says, I tried to explain to him 
that that wouldn't be suitable in this context because there's been research that says it needs this particular medication. And it's exactly the same in teaching, particularly in theology and, 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 and our subjects. So as teachers, we are called to be experts in our theology, to be on top of our game. And as a system, we're putting in place over this three-year implementation plan whole series of professional learning and resources to empower our teachers to be excellent at what they do. The other aspect I said there, and, and principals picked me up on this when I spoke to them at the symposium, theological expertise is one thing, witness is another. It is very difficult to stand up in front of a, a group of young people and not be sincere in what you're teaching. Now that's a disposition. It's a way of life. It's faith. Now we're not going around grading people on their type of level of Catholic. That would be a nonsense and unjust and not what we're about. So it's invitational to be invited into this space to give witness to your faith. Now that's also a, a, life journey, a life's journey. So it's another challenge though, and it's a serious challenge which we don't duck away from. Uh, to be authentic in front of the kids is to make yourself vulnerable, to walk with humility, but to actually say what you believe. And don't say what you don't believe. So there's a particular challenge for us all. To be authentic, to be witnesses as teachers. The curriculum upholds the intrinsic dignity and personal identity of each individual. That's what we're about, because that brings about flourishing. The curriculum advocates for the dignity. Every learning cycle, all 51 of them, advocates for the dignity of the human person. In that relationship, that great commandment between love of God and love of neighbour. Moving from dialogue through encounter to what Emmanuel Levinas calls, a Jewish philosopher calls, face-to-face -face relation. So there are three levels there. The first one is communication. This is what I'm doing. I'm trying to communicate. Uh, whether good or bad, I'm not sure. So I'm trying to communicate. Then there's dialogue. And in our next phase, we're going to engage with, with dialogue with the people who are here today. And then there's a third phase, which we can't do because it requires a level of intimacy, and that's encounter. And it's for the teacher to encounter their students in that face-to-face -face relation in their classroom. And there's something dynamic happens an encounter, a real-life encounter. So I, I was involved in a, in a university program um, where I had to interview potential teachers for a, for a role. And I always had the same question. Why, why do you want to teach? And nearly every one of them said to me, well, there was this teacher once who I've never forgotten. They'd forgotten what the teacher taught them, but they hadn't forgotten that face-to-face -face relation, that encounter which inspired them, actually gave them a career and a life, a vocation. So that's the encounter. So communication, dialogue, encounter. It's the encounter that brings around metanoia, which people don't forget, which our students don't forget. Through contemplation on action and action on contemplation. I've explained this again. So contemplation, we think, we discern through the dispositions, and then we move to do something. But we don't just stay in the action, we go back to contemplation. 
growing out from a contextual loci theoloci. Again, sorry about the words, but what it means is rather important. It means that we understand our context, our schools, our kids, as a source for theology. A loci theoloci means a local source. In the past, for millennia, there's been two sources for our theologizing, scripture and tradition. Today we say there are three sources, scripture, tradition, and our loci theoloci, our context, our kids, our schools, our parents. That's a source for theologizing. And we take that context into our tradition and into our scripture. Three sources for our theologizing, loci, theoloci. Real life experiences as a source for theology awakens young people to that relationship with God and neighbor. And then we have through the promotion of we have eight principles, eight principles of Catholic social teaching. I haven't got time to explain them today, but I'll just say what they are. Dignity of the human person is the foundation principle. The preferential option for the poor and the marginalized is the second. Referring to Laudato Si, our common home, care of our common home is the third. Uh, subsidiarity means giving authority or power to the local context and, and inspiring participation. You can see how all these are connected, is, is the fourth. Uh, the common good, the fifth. Economic justice, six. Solidarity, seven. And promotion of peace, eight. And, and we'll have in our resources going forward uh, information and details on all of those eight. All of the eight are throughout the curriculum based in different ways on the, on the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the nine Beatitudes, and you'll see how they link. One of, one of the, the, the challenges for you as you look to the rationale, and indeed the learning cycles, is to make the connections, to see how inductive logic fits to loci theoloci, which fits to human flourishing, which fits to the person as subject, not as object which fits through building intentional faith communities, which filters in to those eight pillars of Catholic social justice. All of these are connected and interrelated. And as you read and think about them, make the connections. Because when you go to the learning cycles, you will see them. But if you can actually teach our young people about those connections, you'll bring the curriculum to life in a most powerful and dynamic way. Love was at the heart of the life of Jesus. Hence, the curriculum nurtures a strong sense of inclusion, positive regard, belonging and identity. Those are all the essence or the contributors for human flourishing. Understanding with St. Paul that the word of God is living and active grace. Grace is fundamental to the curriculum. The curriculum fosters a dynamic and diverse lived life of faith. Again, this is something we do based on these three pillars. A faith that seeks truth and strives to remove barriers of division, popularism and mobilized ignorance. A faith inspired by Mary, the mother of God, that understands each person is made in the image and likeness of God. A faith that transforms into Christian service towards all, particularly as we keep saying, the marginalized and the most vulnerable. That brings me to the term orthopraxis. Again, it's a simple term. It just means right action. In the past, you will have heard verbatim, I guess, orthodoxy. 
Orthodoxy means right thinking or right belief. Orthopraxis means right action, right response. So you see the connection in the curriculum. Yes, orthodoxy is, is terribly important, but so is orthopraxis, how we actually live and, and act and interreact. In sum, the curriculum reflects Jesus' invitation to come and see, to push out into the deep, seeking to follow his example and to be inspired by an incarnational spirituality, making Christ real. To incarnate means to enflesh, to make real in daily life. We're challenging ourselves and our teachers through this curriculum to make Christ real in the classroom. So the curriculum models an inclusive and transcendent invita invitation to encounter Christ. Christ in the daily paradox of life. Paradox, I think, is probably a new concept to a lot of our young people and maybe even to our teachers. Paradox means that we don't have all the answers, that we aren't certain about certain things, that we live in a paradox. And in the, in the, in the learning cycles, there's a whole series of, of paradoxes that we struggle to come to terms with. The most obvious one, just to illustrate, is why, why do bad things happen to good people? That's a real serious challenge which we have to face and, and bring our young people through. There is a paradox involved in trying to discern the, the answer to that, to that question. To discern God in all things, God in all, all people. To reflect the one in whom we live, move and have our being. Finally, the curriculum seeks to awaken a sacramental vision of reality a way to God, through proclaiming the living voice of the gospel, inspired by Pope Francis and our Bishop Vincent and the whole faith community. We strive together to ensure that every young person experiences metanoia, a joyful, blessed, transcendent and a transformational education, a Catholic education understood as a gateway to human flourishing, one that liberates each person to live their life to the full. As John said of Jesus, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. If you found this episode inspiring, subscribe and you'll be notified as new episodes are released. You can also share this episode or give us a five-star rating. Thanks for joining us on Inspire. Inspire.